Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Uh, Before we dive into today's text, we need to reset the scene, right? It is, in fact, Holy Week, which began when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, that not-so-triumphal entry that we call Palm Sunday. Jesus then went to the temple to examine all that was taking place there, and he didn't like what he saw, that the temple, its ministry, and its leadership were characterized by empty religion. They had the appearance of fruit, but were actually void of fruit, which is what prompted Jesus the next day to curse a barren fig tree as an acted-out parable. The tree was full of leaves, which was an advertisement that it was supposed to have fruit, but upon inspection, it was found that it had no fruit, just like the temple. And so in a corresponding act, Jesus cleansed the temple, as we saw last week. He drove out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers, And he prevented people from using the court of Gentiles as a shortcut. All of which caused the religious leaders to predictably ask, by what authority do you do these things? Or just who do you think you are? And so with that in mind, will you please stand with me as I read the text? Mark 11, 27 through 33. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Father, give us a fresh vision of who you are this day. And that includes the fact that you are the ultimate authority. You answer to no one. And it is our duty as your creation to be those who joyfully, willingly, obediently surrender to you. And so may this time that we spend together in your word be another step in that direction. May we grow in our appreciation of your authority and placing ourselves joyfully, obediently, willingly under that authority. So we pray for your help in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the, the text today breaks down into three main parts. We have a question of authority, a proof of authority, and ultimately a rejection of authority. And so let's start off with that first one, a question of authority. We go back to verse 27 where it says, and they came again to Jerusalem. So who does they refer to? This is Jesus and his disciples who throughout this holy week, where have they been lodging? 
They've been staying at Bethany, located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, two miles southeast of Jerusalem, at the home of Jesus' good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so throughout this Holy Week, we see this rhythm. Uh, Jesus and his disciples will go from Bethany to Jerusalem, spend the day there, and then they will go back and lodge at Bethany. Now on this particular day, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, what was his ultimate destination? Where's he going? Well, the second half of verse 27 says, and his, he was walking in the temple. Now, does it strike you about what a fearless act this is on Jesus' part? Um, he returned to the scene of the crime, figuratively speaking, because um, just the day before, he had thrown the temple into complete upheaval when he drove out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He prevented people from using the court of Gentiles as a shortcut. And so now, at least for one day, he restored reverence to the temple. It became that place of prayer, that house of prayer. He, he abolished the corrupt system that exploited religious pilgrims and lined the pockets of the religious leaders, religious leaders who had reached their limit with Jesus once and for all. I mean, it's one thing for this wannabe Messiah from their perspective to wander around in Galilee and their surrounding regions doing his thing. It's one thing for him to be out there doing those things, but now he has come to their turf to their city, and to their temple where they are supposed to be the ones in authority. How dare he challenge their authority? So clearly from their perspective, something had to be done once and for all about this troublemaker. And so it says in the last part of verse 27 that the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him uh, the chief priests were the current and former high priests. The scribes were the experts in the Jewish law. And the elders were wealthy and influential lay people. And these three groups formed something called the, the, the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. So this is the, 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 the lead group of authority for the Jews at that time. And back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus prophesied, and he said that it would be these three groups that would be instrumental in his death. If we go back to 831, we were there weeks ago. Jesus it says in 831, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, here we are. The prophecy is becoming reality and what are these bloodthirsty opponents of Jesus going to do next? We find out in verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So we need, we need to talk a little bit about this word authority. The dictionary definition is very simply the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience, the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience. Ultimately, the one in authority is the one who's in charge, right? The one who has the power or right to call the shots. And one thing that scripture makes perfectly clear over and over and over again is that Jesus, the Christ, 
is the ultimate authority. Matthew 28, 18, that part right before the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That covers it, doesn't it? All authority. And then Ephesians 1.21, speaking of Jesus, says that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only this age, but also in the one to come. And interestingly, as we've been marching our way very deliberately through Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus demonstrate his authority over every facet of life. Um, For example, these are just to name a few, but in Mark's gospel, we have seen Jesus exercise authority over nature. He calms a storm. Over evil spirits as he casts out demons. Over disease as he heals. Over death as he raises Jairus' daughter to life, and over sin as he extends forgiveness. You see, Jesus repeatedly demonstrated the power and the right of ultimate authority. But here, in our story, in our text today, his authority is being questioned by the stiff-necked religious leaders in the temple. So back to verse 28. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, please note that the religious leaders are not seeking to understand, are they? That's not what's behind the question. Rather, they are seeking to lay a trap. It's all part of their grand scheme to follow through on destroying Jesus. So how do they intend to do this? Well, When they ask about authority, if Jesus says that he's acting on his own authority, then he's guilty of breaking the Jewish law. For to do the things that he was doing would require authorization from the religious leaders. Did Jesus have any authorization? Did he even ask for authorization from the religious leaders? He did not. Why? Because he's ultimate authority. He need not ask permission from anyone for anything. But from their perspective, because he was acting on his own authority, he would be guilty of religious malpractice, breaking the Jewish law. However, the other part of the trap was this. If Jesus were to say, as they had heard him say before, and this is really their hope that he would say it again, if Jesus says that he's acting on his father's authority, then he is guilty of blasphemy. Number one would get him arrested. If Jesus is guilty of religious malpractice, acting on his own authority, that would would get him arrested. But what would number two get him? Blasphemy. Crucifixion. Either way, the religious leaders, (laughs) they think they've got him. Their trap would take care of their Jesus problem once and for all. They could go back to the way things were, exploiting religious pilgrims, lining their pockets, getting rich off of religion. They've been plotting this for a while, actually. Back in verse 18, it said, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. So this isn't just a whim. It is, to some degree, a last straw, but it's been something that had been simmering and brewing for quite some time. Well, how would Jesus respond to their questions about authority? He would give them a proof of authority, our second section of our outline in verses 29 through 30, but not in the way that we would expect. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, 
Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, on one hand, Jesus answering a question with a question will, in fact, help him to escape the trap that was laid for him. We'll see that take place. But it also should be noted that answering a question with a question was a common teaching tool of the rabbis of that day. So he wasn't completely out of bounds doing this. Um, It could be expected almost that a rabbi would respond in this way. But here's the question that Jesus asks in verse 30. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So in his answer in the form of a question, Jesus invokes the name of John the Baptist and specifically his practice of baptizing sinners. Why would Jesus go there? Why would Jesus bring John the Baptist into the conversation? There's there's a couple reasons, really. First, John the Baptist endorsed Jesus, recognizing that Jesus had been given authority from God the Father. Remember John the Baptist's ministry. He must increase. I must decrease. John said of Jesus in John 3.31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John recognized Jesus as the ultimate authority, and so he endorsed him. He recognized that Jesus was from above and had been given the authority of, from above. The second reason that Jesus referenced John the Baptist in giving proof of his authority is that John was held in such high esteem by the Jewish population. They loved John the Baptist. It said back in Mark 1.5, long time ago when we began the study, it says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now that's, that's quite a statement. All the country of Jer- Judea, all Jerusalem, there's certainly some hyperbole here, but the point is that John the Baptist was a bit of a rock star for a while. Very popular with the people, which is going to put the religious leaders in a predicament, in a trap of their own. We see that trap laid in the third section of our outline, which is a rejection of authority. A rejection of authority. Well, what's the trap that the religious leaders now find themselves tied up in, and can they get out of it? Well, look at verse 31, where they try to figure out how to answer the question about the origin of John's baptism. It says, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But Shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Are you familiar with that idiom between a rock and a hard place? Maybe you feel like you're in a situation like that presently between a rock and a hard place. What exactly does that mean? Well, between a rock and a hard place means to be between a rock and a hard place means to have to choose between two equally undesirable choices to be in a very difficult situation. And that's exactly where the religious leaders found themselves at this particular time. You see, if they say that John the Baptist, who endorsed Jesus, was sent from God, if they say that, well, then Jesus really does have authority 
and the people will be confused. Why will they be confused? Because the religious leaders never acknowledged John the Baptist's authority, and they had been continually denouncing Jesus' authority. To reverse course now would make the religious leaders look foolish and attribute authority to Jesus. This would create all kinds of problems if they would say that John the Baptist was sent from God. So they can't do that. That's certainly not a good option for them. It is the rock of the idiom. However, if they say that John the Baptist, who endorsed Jesus, was not sent from God, which is what they truly believed, but they can't say it because then Jesus does not have authority and the people will be angry. Why will the people be angry? Well, because John the Baptist was so very popular with the people. And the religious leaders would, in essence, be calling him a fraud. And politically, these religious leaders can't deal with the fallout of denouncing John the Baptist. It would be a threat to their popularity and to their power. So they are, in fact, between a rock and a hard place. They've, they've fallen into their own trap. How will they attempt to get out? Verse 33. So they answer Jesus, we do not know. Bunch of cowards, right? Their answer for getting caught in a trap of their own making was to give no answer, to not take a side, to be Switzerland, to try to be neutral, to um, not take a position regarding John the Baptist. Their love of power and the praise of people would not permit them to take a side, to give an answer. And here's the great tragedy of the situation, really. Jesus had actually given them an opportunity here, perhaps their last opportunity, to recognize him as divine, to recognize him as Savior and as Lord, to recognize Jesus to be the ultimate authority and for them to declare it to be so. They had an opportunity here to make that declaration, but rather than to do so, they chose to say nothing. And you've probably heard it said before, to say nothing is to really say something. By saying nothing, they rejected Jesus as divine. They rejected Jesus as Savior. They rejected Jesus as Lord, bringing judgment on themselves. And in Jesus' response to their rejection is quite interesting and terrifying, really. We see in the second half of verse 33 where it says, And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's almost like a punctuation mark. This is it. This is your last and final opportunity. Well, this answer by Jesus, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It, it really leads directly into our first point of application this morning. It's not the primary point of application, but it is a point of application that I believe fits the text well. Application, how shall we then live? First point of two is no answer to people is sometimes the right answer. No answer to people is sometimes the right answer. Why? Well, because just as it was with Jesus, there will be times in our lives where there will be people in your lives who, when they question you, 
they're not really seeking the truth, are they? Rather, their hearts are hardened, their minds are already made up, just as was the case with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something really provocative, and it applies to this. He said, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? And especially so when you consider the fact that this, this came from the lips of Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is addressing the fact that some people have so closed their hearts and so closed their minds to the truth that they're to be considered as dogs and pigs. They, they do not come with questions to genuinely engage you, but rather to aggressively attack you. And so rather than to retaliate, no answer to people is sometimes the right answer. Their hardness of heart and their um, unlikelihood of being able to listen and hear truth, Jesus says, let it go. Sometimes no answer is the right answer. Now, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit to know when that is the case. We must depend on the Holy Spirit to tell us when no answer is the right answer. We must do it with a Christ-like attitude. Let me add one more nuance to this. This does not include Christian brothers and sisters asking you questions of loving accountability. Let me say that again. This does not include Christian brothers and sisters asking you questions of loving accountability. It is right and good for us as fellow believers in the context of loving relationship to ask one another questions that help us to stay on the narrow path. When people do that and they do it with the right attitude in the right context of relationship, this is a treasure. This is a treasure, something we should value and something that we should respond to even when it hurts, even when it stings, when that loving accountability comes into our lives and it's like, yeah, you're right. That's not a place for you to say, well, who are you? you know, what right do you have? It's like we, we together, as the church, we are called the body of Christ. And so when we come together as the church, what happens in your life directly impacts me. What happens in my life directly impacts you. We give each other the right to speak into one another's lives because we are a body. It is not appropriate in the context of loving relationship to say, I'm not going to answer that. It's none of your business. It is the business of brothers and sisters who have joined together in the body. So, while it is true that no answer to people is sometimes the right answer, it is also true that, and I believe this is the main point of the passage, no answer to God is always the wrong answer. No answer to God is always the wrong answer. The religious leaders, they tried to get away with this, didn't they? That was their approach. It's like, hey, we'll be neutral. We won't ruffle any feathers. We'll just kind of ride the fence. We won't take a side. We'll say, we don't know. We're not going to answer. But again, they failed to realize that no answer to God is really an answer 
because it is a rejection of him and his authority in their lives and in your lives. I love that passage in 1 Kings 18.21 of Elijah. He's in the midst of the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Some of your translations, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And interestingly, and the people did not answer him a word. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the religious leaders in today's text. The people gave no answer when confronted by God and the truth. But make no mistake, when they gave no answer, it was most definitely an answer. An answer of rejection. Some of you are trying to ride that fence today, aren't you? Trying to have it both ways. I don't want to go to hell, but you live like hell. I want to be saved, but I want to be my own authority. I want to do what I want. It doesn't work that way. Elijah, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. Make a choice. Make a choice. And so it's interesting, when we look back at verses 29 and 30 of today's text, Jesus makes a plea. He makes a plea as he gave this opportunity to the religious leaders to respond. I believe he makes a plea to us today, twice in verses 29 through 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Two times Jesus pleads with them for an answer regarding who they recognize him to be. Two times Jesus says, answer me. And I believe in the very same way. Jesus is saying the same thing to you and to me today. Answer me. Answer me. I've been calling you to be my child. To turn from your sins and to turn to me alone for forgiveness. Answer me. I've been calling you to obedience. To do that hard thing that you're resistant to. To do that hard thing for your good, because I know ultimately what's good for you. And for my glory, I've been calling you to obedience in this way. Answer me. I've been calling you to take a step of faith. To get out of the boat and walk with me on the water. I know it's scary. I know it doesn't make sense. But will you answer me? been calling you to a deeper life, not just a Sunday, show up at church till the next Sunday kind of life, to stop skimming along the surface of religion and to take the plunge into deep discipleship. Will you answer me? I wonder how exactly is Jesus calling you today, and will you answer him? Let's pray.
Father, we've seen the negative example. The, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, hell-bent on being their own authority, of doing what they want to do, of rejecting the ultimate authority of Jesus in their lives. And I guarantee, if we could talk to them today, they would say, oh, we missed it. We missed it bad. If only we could go back to that moment when Jesus gave us that opportunity. If only we could go back and make things right. If only we could go back and give an answer, the right answer. We'd give anything to go back and to do that again. God, I pray that no one in the sound of my voice will have that regret. God, I pray that we would be a people who not only give lip service to your ultimate authority, it's easy to do. He is Lord, he is Lord. But who actually live, actually live that reality. If you are Lord, we are not. If you are Lord, you are the authority. If you are Lord, then we surrender ourselves to you completely. It is you who call the shots, not ourselves. So God, would you, where necessary, would you re reorganize those lines of authority in our lives? We repent, we confess to you that in so many different ways, at so many different times, We've tried to wrestle authority away from you. You won't have it. You will share not your glory or your authority with any other. So God, we confess that to you as sin. We repent of it. We turn away. And God, in those areas where you are calling us, and I believe all over this sanctuary, all over the commons, all over the live stream, you are calling people to salvation you are calling people to obedience. You are calling people to steps of faith. You are calling people to a deeper life. Oh God, may we not respond with no answer. Because as we've seen, no answer is an answer. It is a rejection. So God, in the quietness of this moment, may you find us to be obedient and faithful and to respond to you with an answer, which is we, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will walk the narrow path. We will surrender our lives to the authority, the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.